Who during the pandemic acquired a pandemic pet? There's a few. Oh, there's some kids even. All right, I'm glad I'm not the only one, but I, I want to tell you about this, uh, this experience that we have had with our pandemic pet. My wife and my daughter have been uh, lobbying for some time now that our family should get a pet, that we needed to get a cat. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I know this might upset some of you. I am not a cat person. I'm, I'm not a cat person, and I, I have no aspirations to become a cat person. So I've been putting up every uh, obstacle I can in, uh, in to thwart their efforts. I do not want us to get a pet. Um, I'd say, why don't we wait till I'm done with seminary? Or Tracy, why don't we wait till you're done with going back to school? Or we could wait till Abigail's old enough to really take care of it. Or may maybe we'll just wait till she's old enough to pay for it. <laughs> right? And and my efforts to stop us from getting a pet have worked well until summer of 2020. And in that summer, as we looked towards the school year and we realized kids probably aren't going back to school in the way we imagined, and I'm probably going to be working from home, and we're going to be spending a lot more time together as a family for longer than we anticipated, I let it slip. I let my guard down for just a second. I said, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad time to get Abigail a cat. So that was, that was all it took, and then it, it was pretty much a decision in my family that we were going to get a cat. Now, I was assured that cats are easy, they're not difficult. They pretty much take care of themselves. And it's only, you know, the food and the litter is not too expensive. It's only like one, one vet visit a year. It's really, it's really, and the vet over there just laughed, by the way. I just, but I was assured. And so I had these expectations. You know, I think we can do this. So through a family friend, we, uh, we found out that there were these two kittens that were so cute. Uh, there was one of them. Uh, that just, oh man, so, so cute, right? How can you say no to that? So we told Abigail that we're going to get her a cat for her birthday, and she is just overjoyed, so excited. We go and we adopt this cat. Abigail gets to name it. She chooses Lila, such a cool name for a cute little three-month-old kitten. And this is a picture 30 minutes into us having Lila. Isn't that just the best? The look on her face, the excitement... Abigail came to, to just love Lila. Lila, for the most part, loves Abigail, but you know, she's a cat. I mean, even Everett, who is two at the time, found the cat entertaining. Like, what happens if I poke it? Um, he has not killed the cat yet. And even my, my wife obviously loves it. Uh, e even myself, who's not the cat person, found this cat to be kind of cute and cuddly sometimes. This, this cat's laying in my lap. And it's hard to not love the little kitten. So that was over a year ago. And now, this is a picture of Lila yesterday. And, uh, you know, Lila did pretty good during the pandemic in the time that we were home. She's a very social cat, or so we, we've been told uh, by our vet. And, uh, and so Lila likes interaction. When we all went back to work and we all, you know, went back to school and we're not home as much as we used to be, Lila has started to beg for attention. Her favorite way to beg for attention is to go to someone in the house and guess what? Guess who she goes to? <laughs> the not cat person. And she goes to me right when I sit down in a recliner in the living room to relax and she'll attack me and then run away and hope that I play. 
She likes to do this, like, really at night after we finally get the kids to bed, and I, like, sit down, take a breath, and then, oh my gosh, what was that sharp claws out of nowhere sneak attack? Or in the morning when I get up early to drink my coffee and spend time with the Lord and center myself for the day, and I'm, I'm just reaching a really good place where I can focus and pray and read scripture, and then, bam, Lilac attacks me. So I, I've been less than pleased about this, but what really set me over the edge is uh, this cat came litter box trained, which was great. And in the last three or four weeks, Lila has decided she does not need to use the litter box only. Right? So what she's preferred to use is the kids' laundry hampers. <laughs> and, and so you can imagine, I'm not very happy. Uh, we thought, we thought may, maybe she has a bladder issue, took her to the vet. Um, that costs extra money. Uh, the vet wanted me to do a urine analysis, and that apparently is hard to get a sample from a cat, so then that requires an extra procedure, also costs extra money. Um, we, we had to leave the cat a little bit extra to do this. Um, get the results back earlier this week, and the vet told me, no, everything looks good, which means the issue is behavioral which is code for, it's going to be a lot more difficult to solve. <laughs> and this, this has been my journey as a cat owner, you guys. And we're going to get through it. I'm confident we will. But what, what I'm realizing is my expectations going into this were different, and I'm going to have to adjust my expectations. Um, what I, the way I thought this was going to work is not working out. Now, this happens in a lot of places in our lives, right? where we have expectations going into a situation, and then we get to that situation, and guess what? That doesn't always work out the way we anticipated. And what you have to do in that, in that case um, is, is you have to readjust. You have to adjust your expectations. You have to set up new expectations. That's not just something we have to do with lovely cats. That's also something the disciples had to confront as they... We're trying to follow Jesus. And we're going to read a story today about a time when the disciples were trying to follow Jesus, and he disrupts their expectations. Before we get into that, would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this Bethany family and for the ways you've gathered us to worship you, to encounter you, to be filled with your hope this morning. I pray right now that you would open up our minds, Lord, to see in your word where you are speaking into our lives. Show us, God, the ways that you want to set our expectations on you, the ways you're calling us to follow you as your disciples. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you, God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are going to look at a passage from the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's in chapter 10, and at this point in Mark, uh, Mark's the shortest gospel, so at, at this point, really the disciples have already been with Jesus for pretty much all of his life of ministry, and they're now setting their sights in the very end. They're on the, they're on the road to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, Jesus will be crucified. We all, we all know that, um, or if you didn't, now, now you know but this is the end. This is a journey on the road to Jerusalem. And this is the conversation Jesus has with a couple of his disciples. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
That's a sneaky way of asking a question. Can you do me a favor? I don't want to tell you what the favor is, but will you agree to it? Jesus is smarter than them. He doesn't fall for it. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? So he makes them come clean and actually name their request. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. All right, so here's the request. They want to sit one on his right and one at his left in his glory. What, what does that mean? Well, uh, recently in the Gospel of Mark, just a couple chapters before chapter 10, uh, they realized that Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a prophet or a miracle worker, but he's actually the Messiah. He's the Christ, the anointed one who is going to establish God's kingdom on earth and accomplish all of God's purposes. And a common understanding of the Messiah at that point in time is that the Messiah would be a military victor. It would be a warrior king who would march into Jerusalem, raise up an army, kick out all the bad guys, overthrow the Romans, and establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem like it should be, a real, physical, tangible kingdom with a throne. And guess who gets to sit on the throne? The Messiah. So they find out Jesus is the Messiah, and now they're thinking, oh, Jesus, if he's going to be on the throne, maybe we can sit on the places of honor on either side of him, right? That, that would be good. So this is what they're asking. They're asking, when you become king and are sitting on the throne, can we sit in the places of honor? And here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And so I think Jesus is more gracious than I would have been. I think I might have said something like, don't ask silly questions or get over yourself. But Jesus, he tells them, you guys really don't understand what you're asking. There's more than just a misunderstanding with the question they're asking. Though. There's a really big misunderstanding in the whole situation. And we know that if we look at what's happening around this story. And, and the story right before that, they're still on the road on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus takes them aside and he predicts that he is going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And the disciples don't get it. They don't get it that he is not going to be a king that ascends to power on a throne. He's going to be descending to the point of death to accomplish God's purposes. And it, what's funny, this, this isn't the first time Jesus has told them this. This isn't even the second time he's told them this. This is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that he's told them what kind of Messiah he's going to be. In Mark 8, he tells them that he is going to die when they get to Jerusalem. And this is the encounter with Peter where Peter tries to tell Jesus, no, you can't do that. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Peter's low, low, low moment. A chapter later in Mark 9, he predicts his death again. And then after that, uh, I mean, the disciples don't respond. I don't think they know what to do with that. And then after that, they're going to another village and the disciples get into an argument on the way. And so Jesus asks them later, he says, hey, what were you guys arguing about? They are tight-lipped. They, they do not want to fess up to that. Uh, and, and finally, Jesus says, you know, I know you were arguing about who was going to be greatest. And he tells them, I'm, 
I'm not here to make you the greatest. And then he puts a kid in front of them and he tells them to go do children's ministry. That'll humble you, right? And then in Mark chapter 10, he tells them again, and what do James and John do? Like, oh, you're going to die. Well, hey, hey, Jesus, when you're king, can we sit in your left and right? They clearly don't understand. It's not just that they're asking a bad question. It's that they don't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. They've started following Jesus, but this is going to be way different than their expectations, right? They're not ready to develop new expectations. And and this question Jesus asked them is really a reference to his suffering and death. The cup and the baptism, those are our sacraments, but the reference here is the cup of divine wrath. That was a common uh, image used in the Old Testament. Jesus later at the Last Supper will say um, that this is the cup of my blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for many. And then later, even in the garden, Jesus is praying and he says, Father, remove this cup from me. It's the, it's the cup of suffering. And baptism, while it has imagery with cleansing and purification, it also has this imagery associated with it of being completely submersed, of like, like drowning. Ooh. So he's asking them, are you willing to suffer with me? I've told you that I'm going to suffer and die. You, you guys clearly don't get this, but you're wanting to be great. Are you willing to suffer with me? So they replied, we are able. And just as I don't think they understand what they were asking, I don't think they understood the question they're, they're answering. They say they're able. I don't, I don't think they understand what they're saying. And Jesus, then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So that's Jesus. He predicts, basically, their suffering and death. And as leaders in the early church, James and John both will face persecution. Uh, and James will even be martyred before the end of the, gospel, uh, before the, end of the book of Acts. I don't, they didn't understand this yet. I wonder what happened when they looked back and they did understand that. Jesus finishes all this up by pointing, um, by answering the original question. He says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And he basically says, it's not my decision. I'm not making that call. That's the father's prerogative, not the son's. And so we can see in this encounter that James and John really are misunderstanding not, not just what is it going to look like for them to follow him, but who Jesus is. This exchange does not stay just between the three of them. Um, Not just because it got into the Gospel of Mark, but the other disciples around them, they're not that far away. They're all traveling by foot to Jerusalem. And so the next thing that happens is their friends find out. When the ten, that's the twelve minus James and John, when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. And just in case you're wondering, this is not a righteous anger where they're taking Jesus' side. They're not saying, how dare you ask Jesus such a silly question? What they're angry about is that they all want to be great. And James and John got a leg up on them, right? James and John, 
got an early start, and they went and asked Jesus without the other 10, hey, I know we're part of the elect 12, but could we be elevated even higher than the others? Their friends don't like that very much. What this shows is that it's not just James and John that misunderstand who Jesus is and how they're called to follow him. It's really all the 12 disciples. We're at the end of Jesus' ministry, remember? We're, We're headed towards Jerusalem. This is the end right here. And they are completely missing it. I think what, what has happened is all of the disciples were invited to follow Jesus and said yes, and they're following Jesus, but they haven't yet let go of the previous expectations that life had put in their mind. They still have these aspirations to become great in some way, to make something of themselves. And yeah, Jesus, I can follow you, but can I also ascend to a status of greatness? And so Jesus sees this, this, this big miss that they have, and he tries to correct them. So Jesus called them, and he said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their, as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. So Jesus begins by calling out the worldly ways of greatness. The understanding of greatness in, in, the, in the eyes of the world, it's all about how high can I ascend? How many people will be under me? What kind of title or position or influence can I gain and use for my own good? That, that's the question, right? Our world's not so different today, right? The greatness looks like uh, gaining something for yourself And what Jesus says is, that is not how I'm calling you to be my followers. You can't follow Jesus and keep that same hope for your life, that that's what's going to be, your life is is going to be all about. So Jesus offers them an alternative. He says, but whoever wishes to become great, and I wonder if he looked at James and John at that point. Remember, they want to become great. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus is totally turning the tables upside down. He's saying greatness in the kingdom of God does not look like asking the question, how high can I ascend? It looks like asking the question, how low can I descend so that I am serving the needs of others more than myself? It doesn't look like asking, how can I get into first place? It actually is going to look a little bit more like purposefully putting yourself in last place. This is a wildly unpopular idea in the world that we live in, you guys. This is not something that attracts the masses. This is not something that you're going to find in the how to build your best life now. This is is radically different than the way of the world. My youth minister would try to teach us this sometimes. Uh, When I was growing up in youth group, we would always play a game to start with. Then we would do circle up and say a prayer. And as soon as amen was said, a few of us would bolt for the snack line. Because when you're 14 or 15 years old and you just played a game, snack's the most important thing, right? And, And so we would bolt for the snack line. We'd be pushing and running and shoving and trying to jockey for position. How can I get in front? I want to be first. And 
you know, some people would be last, but in my mind, like, well, they just didn't try as hard. And I got snack first, sometimes, right? First or second, maybe. Well, sometimes my youth minister would let us do that. He would let us get all lined up, and then he would say, all right, everybody stop. Today's your lucky day, because we're going to do the peanut butter shuffle. And I never understood why he called it the peanut butter shuffle, but I came to learn the peanut butter shuffle is when the whole line backs up, and the back of the line becomes the front of the line, and the front of the line is now in the back of the line. And man, that, that was so frustrating to me. I worked so hard to get in front. And what my youth minister was doing was he was trying to teach me this principle, right? This discipleship point that being first in the eyes of the world, that is not the same thing as being first in the eyes of God. Not the same thing. Jesus is calling us to the way of the servants. And it's a wildly unpopular idea. He, finally, he finishes this teaching by pointing to himself. And Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Really, the reason that he's calling his followers to follow the way of the servant, of lowering oneself and serving others, um, not trying to ascend to worldly greatness, is because he's calling them to follow his example. He says that that's the kind of Messiah he is going to be. Not one that cruises into Jerusalem with an army to overthrow the Roman occupiers and triumph with a big military victory. No. He's going to be a Messiah that lowers himself, that intentionally serves others, that actually loses his life for the sake of others. And if you're wondering, that, that, that reference to the Son of Man, Jesus uses that term, Son of Man, it's a self-designation. And it, it has an implication that he is the Messiah, but it, it had less baggage than the word Messiah or Son of David, which were the, so a couple of the other messianic terms in Jesus' day. And so just an interesting thing I was looking at as I studied the scripture this week, uh, a lot of scholars think that Jesus uses that term Son of Man because he's trying to tell them he's the Messiah, and he doesn't want a term that has so much baggage that they're immediately going to think that he's going to be a military warrior king. So he uses that term, son of man, because he can, he can reshape their expectations for what the Messiah is going to do. So Jesus is trying to reshape the expectations of the disciples. He's trying to show them that instead of the way of the world... He wants them to follow the way of the servant. And I think we can all agree, it, it took a while for the disciples to get there. Even after his death, you know, when he's crucified, they basically all run and hide. I think it took really until the resurrection for them to get that and to start to live into that. I wonder where in our lives do we need to reset our expectations on what it looks like to follow Jesus? And I'm thinking, you know, the disciples, they started following Jesus and they were hoping to hold on to their former aspirations of life, ascending to a status of greatness, and still follow Jesus. I wonder if sometimes we might do the same thing. Whether you start following Jesus growing up as a kid in church, or maybe as an adult you came to, to know and love Jesus and want to follow him. And I wonder if sometimes we have a hard time letting go of our former aspirations I mean, guys, we live in Austin, Texas, 
the worldly greatness is palpable all around us, right? It's one of the best places to live in the country. Um, there are businesses that are wildly successful and more keep moving in, right? It's in the water around us and it affects how we think about our lives. So it's natural that many of us have these aspirations to want to define ourselves as great in the eyes of the world. There's, there's some ways we do this and I think we try to do this without letting go of it when we're following Jesus. I wonder if some of us are thinking about, yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you, but please don't let me let go of my status and my popularity. Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but I, I really like having power and influence. If you could just preserve that, that'd be great. Jesus, I want to follow you, but um, having financial stability would be really nice. And, and maybe we even try to convince Jesus that, you know, if you give me financial stability, I'd be able to follow you way better. Right? Anyone else had that conversation? Maybe we want to follow Jesus, but we don't want to give up our comfort. Or we want to follow Jesus, but as long as I don't have to be around those people. There's a lot of ways that the, the greatness in the eyes of the world, it infiltrates our lives. And what Jesus wants to do, my friends, is he wants to help us reset, to walk away from understandings of worldly greatness so that we can follow Jesus' way of lowering ourselves what that really does, it opens up a life of really being able to serve others. We have, uh, we have a group of confirmands. We're confirming, I think we confirmed last night, 17 students that are in middle school and high school that are deciding for themselves to follow Jesus and be intentional in their, in their relationship with him. It is so exciting. In a minute, they're going to come up here and uh, become members of our church, which is super exciting one of the things we do as we're, as we're talking to the confirmands, I try to always talk to them about what it looks like to live the Christian life. Like, I want them to know, what are you getting yourself into? And there's, there's two parts to it in the simplest way I know how to explain it. We're, we're called to follow Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Let's talk about the Savior thing first. Following Jesus as our Savior, this is great. It's where we recognize that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, my sins can be taken care of. I can be forgiven, and the wall between Jesus, between God and I, can can be knocked down. This makes a way for us to be forgiven and have a relationship with God once again. And hallelujah, praise the Lord! That's some of the best news in the world. We never really move on from that. We always look back and depend on that. But that's not the end of the Christian life. This is what I love telling the confirmands that. Following Jesus also means you follow him as your Lord, which means that you're saying, Jesus, I'm going to let you be in charge of my life. I'm going to stop trying to call all the shots. I'm going to take the keys of my life and say, here you go, Jesus, you drive. Man, that is a lot less popular, and it's a lot harder. And what I've found in my life is Jesus keeps bringing me to places where he wants me to let go of more. And I have to revisit those and be like, yes, I still will let go of this. Jesus being Lord of our lives means his suffering and death is not just something we benefit from, it's something we follow in his letting go of the, the ways of the world. So I wonder this morning, where are each of us on this journey? How many of us are like the disciples, where we, we kind of want to follow Jesus, but only if we get to hold on 
to the greatness in the eyes of the world that we're latched onto. And for some of us, there's some ways where Jesus is calling us to let go of some things and to surrender those things to him. For, for some of us, the way of the servant, uh, may, maybe just having more openness, say, God, who do you want me to serve? And then being intentional to serve that person. Like Jesus is calling us to willingly lower ourselves for the sake of others, to follow his example. I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me. This is the Wesleyan Covenant prayer, and we usually around the new year use this prayer as a way to just kind of reset for the new year. But in my mind, this is something that we need whenever we're responding to God, especially when we're trying to let go of some things. So I invite you uh, to pray this prayer with me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. Lord God, I give you thanks for your word and for the ways that you reach into our lives and challenge us. I just give you thanks, Lord, that you provide us with a path to living life that is different and more satisfying than what the world has to offer. God, I pray right now that you would help each of us to see how you're calling us to live a life of a servant modeled after Jesus. I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts so we can have hearts of servants like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.